We continue today in our series on Colossians, living thankfully through the supremacy of Christ, and we're going to be in the second chapter, verses 8 through 15 today. I'll primarily be keying on the end of that passage, but I want you to notice how uh, significant Jesus is all through this passage. It's all about being in Christ, and not just in Christ, but what Jesus offers us uh, through His work and through God's power. So we will treat this as a unison reading. Let's read the Word of God together. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands." This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. With all of the rainy weather that we've been having, I think 11 days now, maybe you remember uh, this old Peanuts cartoon. It's been raining and raining and Lucy is complaining to Linus that she's afraid there's going to be a terrible flood and everyone will drown. And Linus says to her, it cannot happen. In Genesis 9, God promised to never again destroy the earth. And he placed the rainbow in the sky as a sign of his promise. And Lucy says, boy, am I relieved. And Linus says, sound theology has a way of doing that. And what we need to see today is that Paul gives us some sound theology that should bring us relief and hope every single day, even though we live in a world where evil is so prevalent, where people will walk into a a college campus and begin to gun down those who express a faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to look at verse 13 and following. This is where Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it 
to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Did He really disarm the rulers and the authorities? That's something we want to think about today. Much is contained in these verses, but we need to notice first of all that God is active and powerful even in the face of this evil that's prevalent all over our world today. His loving purposes are being worked out for even though we were dead in our sins, God has made us alive in Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed how the Bible has these two concepts of death and sin almost always side by side. Here in our text we read, when we were dead in our trespasses or dead in our sins as the NIV has it. In Romans 6 we can see that the wages of sin is what? Is death. In 1 Corinthians 15 we can read that the sting of death is sin. These two are always side by side. But in all of those places, we receive the same good news that we see in our text this morning, that even though we were dead in our sins, even though we were without hope, God has made us alive in Jesus Christ. And that new life comes through forgiveness from our sins. Paul says God has forgiven us. And notice that he's, he's not forgiven us just from some of our sins, but from all of our sins, from every sin that we have ever committed, every sin we ever will commit from this day forward. God has forgiven them all. And it's very clear that what has gone on is is not human work. It's not something that we somehow bring about by our own righteousness or by our own good works as if we could do any. God is the one who has made us alive. As one author put it, do you finally recognize that all that is required of you is to do exactly what Lazarus did, which is exactly and only nothing. You just lie there dead, and Jesus does the calling forth. Everything old, like your sin, rises up clean, and God does all of this through the perfect life that Jesus lived on this earth, through His sacrificial death on the cross, and by God's power that raised Him on the third day. But how? We know we're forgiven, but how are we forgiven? We're told here that God canceled the record of debt that was against us, that He set it aside by nailing it to the cross. We know that the Scriptures many times use legal terms when referring to this sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf, and this passage today is no exception. This term, record of debt, or bond, as the RSV has it, referred in Paul's time to a a personally signed IOU. That is to say, it was legal proof of one's 
indebtedness. In our day and time, it would be much like a banknote. You know, anytime you borrow money, whether it's through a credit card or through a local bank for an installment loan or a mortgage loan, you sign a, a paper, a legal document. And the more money you borrow, the more papers you sign. Have you ever noticed that? You can get, you know, $5,000 on a credit card for one page. But if you're going to borrow a, 30, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars for a 30-year mortgage, you sign a stack of papers. And that note is canceled when it's paid in full. And the only trouble with bank loans that I've ever found is that no one's ever willing to pay mine for me. I always have to pay them myself, but that's the contrast that Paul is providing in our passage here today. God has paid our indebtedness to him precisely because we could not. We've sinned and the law has its legal demands against us. And there's nothing we can do about that. We've broken the law and we deserve death. And yet God cancels the debt by nailing it to the cross. Isn't that a great way? It's just like God takes care. He swoops in at the bank and pays it all for us. He does this by Jesus taking all of the sins of the world upon His own shoulders and going to the cross. That's how God does it, by nailing it to the cross. And please notice that this canceling of our debt, this nailing it to the cross, not only redeems us from sin, not only Uh, gives us eternal life as we love to talk about, but it also has another great result. Look at what Paul says in verse 15. He says that he, meaning God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, meaning in Jesus Christ, meaning through his death. And resurrection. And this is where the good news of the gospel in general terms, and if you want to be more specific, the good news of Easter begins to have an effect on how we're able to deal with all of this evil in the world around us. God disarmed the rulers and the authorities. That is to say, all evil powers, meaning Satan and all of his hosts, through his sacrifice on the cross. Through his resurrection on the third day, Jesus defeated Satan. He put him to shame in front of the entire universe. And this victory over death is why we always have hope. Regardless of what's going on in our world around us, it's why we have hope. That's why Peter says... At the beginning of his first letter, by God's great mercy, we've been born anew to a living hope. Not any hope, not a dead hope, a hope that is alive and well through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you and kept in heaven for me. 
Now, when Paul uses this language here about disarming the rulers and the authorities and triumphing over them in him, he's using militaristic language because he's talking about a spiritual battle. You know, the Roman army had what they called a triumph where it was a great parade after a great victory. They would come into Rome and and have all of their uh, prisoners of war and all of the the booty and that kind of thing. It was all there for everyone to see. And this is the kind of language that Paul is using here in this text. It's the same spiritual battle. He's using this militaristic language, the same spiritual battle you and I have every day. Except this is where the ultimate outcome was decided. But Satan didn't know that. You know, I once heard Charles Stanley preaching on this very passage and he was making the point in his sermon that Satan is not omniscient. You know, sometimes we forget that. We think that Satan knows everything just like God does, but he doesn't. He's created. Only God is all-knowing. So after he couldn't get Jesus to yield to one of his temptations in the wilderness, Satan must have thought, I'll try and kill him. I'll work through people to kill him, and this way God's plans will be destroyed. Now if you look for it, you can see Satan's hand behind many of those occasions in the New Testament where we're told that people tried to kill Jesus, but the timing was never right, like in his own hometown where we're told after being in the synagogue, they took him out and tried to throw him headlong over a cliff. But the timing wasn't right. Or in the temple where they tried to stone him after he said, before Abraham was, I am. Of course, Satan was finally successful, or at least he thought so in his mind's eye. In Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, using Judas to betray Jesus to the Jewish religious authorities. But do you see the irony? What appeared on the surface to be Christ's humiliation and God's defeat actually turned out to be God's victory and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. This is why the resurrection is the decisive climax in the worldwide drama of redemption. It is, in fact, the day the spiritual war was won, much to Satan's surprise. This is why Paul maintains in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But Paul goes on to proclaim there in 1 Corinthians 15, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Just like we read in Colossians 1, He's the firstborn of the dead, which means there are others that will follow, others who will be raised just like He was, even people like you and me. And this is why fear no longer has any power. This is why we can maintain hope even when it seems as if evil has its way each and every day because Satan's power has no lasting claim, no ruling 
power over us. Now, that's not to say that Satan doesn't have power. He does. Paul calls him in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world. And he doesn't give him that title without justification. Yes, he's powerful, but he no longer has death to hold over you and me. He no longer has the power of death to hold over this world any longer. We as the body of Christ have the luxury of fighting spiritual battles day in and day out in a war that has already been won. That means there's still going to be a war. That means there are still battles. That means there will still be pain and suffering and agony and even death, just like in World War II, where even early in 1943, some of Hitler's high command, like his minister of war, Albert Speer, already knew that that Germany had lost the war. But as you know, there was still a lot of fighting after early 1943. And the Allies knew that once the D-Day invasion was successful in the summer of 44, that the war was won. It was just a matter of time. But there was all of that claiming of territory, all of those battles to fight, all of that uh, pain and agony and suffering and death that must take place. And the same holds true for you and me and for the church of Jesus Christ Today, just think of our Christian brothers and sisters in Africa and the Middle East, many of whom have seen their church buildings burn to the ground. They've seen their loved ones murdered right before their very eyes. Some of them are still in prison today because of their faith. And even in America, we can see that the tide has turned against the Christian church. When people are targeted for their faith in Jesus Christ. But we have to remember what Paul tells us in Romans 8. We groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about when he says we run that race with perseverance. And how do we run that race? Looking to Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, looking to Jesus who is the source of this living hope through His resurrection power from the dead. We need to remember that as we read through the Gospels, we can see that in His teaching and in His preaching, Jesus, He doesn't really explain evil. What Jesus does is talk about overcoming evil. He even tells his disciples. It's recorded for us in the Gospel of John there at the end of chapter 16. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. 
He doesn't say there that one day he hopes to overcome the world. He doesn't say that he will overcome the world. He says, I have overcome the world. This is how we live in hope each and every day. We place our trust in the one who conquered the world and all of its powers and authorities once and for all. And this is one reason we come to this table again and again. We don't remember His sacrifice today with all the rest of the world of Christians. We don't remember His sacrifice because He's still dead. How morbid would that be? We remember His sacrifice because He's alive. We remember His sacrifice because He was raised on the third day. We remember His sacrifice because He rules today at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and will come again. We even say that in the words of institution for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, you are preaching the Lord's death until what? Until He comes again. That's why it's a living hope. And that's why it's important to continue to do this. Because it gives you and me a way in the midst of evil every day to say with the Holy Scriptures that Christ is alive and that He has vanquished death and the grave. And we remember His death as a way to proclaim that until He comes again and rules forevermore in that new heaven and new earth. In other words, in essence, it's the good news of the gospel. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.